Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, we look at the increasingly popular concept of organic no-till. In this episode, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Dr. Aaron Silva, Associate Professor specializing in organic and sustainable cropping systems at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Silva also heads up the Organic Grain Resource and Information Network, also known as O-Grain, and she was one of the presenters for the inaugural 2019 National Cover Crop Summit. Listen in as Frank and Dr. Silva discuss what's involved in transitioning to organic, some of the innovations that are making the practice more attainable, how organic no-till yields compare to conventional yields, the benefits of running parallel conventional and organic operations, how adding livestock can add value to an organic crop rotation, and much more. So let's start with a little of your background. You, uh, you grew up in Wisconsin? I did. Yep. I grew up outside of Milwaukee. Didn't come from a farming background um, and didn't realize that I was interested in making agriculture my career until I got into college and did some work in a, a lab that was doing research in carrot breeding at UW-Madison. So kind of found agriculture through my interest in ecology and the environment, but feel very lucky that I'm able to work with farmers and and work in agricultural settings. So you must have got a bachelor's degree in Madison. What about advanced degrees? I got my master's and PhD from Washington State University. All right, out in Pullman. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So you know what no-till is really about out there in the yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, and, and fallow and um, dry land agriculture, yeah, I right. certainly do. So what is your position right now? Um, currently, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Plant Pathology, specializing in organic and sustainable cropping systems. So my research and extension program is, is focused on sustainable cropping systems, and, and primarily organic, but also including other approaches that, that integrate multiple management perspectives. How'd you get interested in organic? I got interested in organic due to the emphasis on ecological management. And certainly there are many farmers and many different approaches that also integrate ecological management using crop diversity, using rotation, using cover crops, all of the management principles that we've learned help foster and improve our soil health. But organic was a way to emphasize those practices that are are commonly used by farmers that are pursuing certified organic operations or or managing certified organic operations. Well, we've been doing the National No-Tillage Conference, I think, for 28 years now, and we get about a thousand growers. And I can remember back five or six years ago, or maybe a little longer, we would run a roundtable for farmers who were interested in organic no-till. And if we were really lucky, we'd get 25 farmers to go to that session. 
But now this year, I think we ran one this year and over 100 of our farmers went there. So there's definitely interest among big acreage no-tillers in getting at least some of their acreage into organic no-till. And you've had a couple speakers at your old grain conference that we've had as speakers, and some of them are talking about getting 15, 20% of their acreage organic in the next few years. What's, what's the reason what you see is all the interest among no-tillers and organic? I think as as farmers are increasingly seeing the benefits of soil health and and particularly with the rise of the regenerative agricultural movement, we're able to emphasize in not only maintaining our soil resources, but but building and improving our soil resources that there's increasing overlap with the practices and the goals of organic and regenerative farmers. And and many of the farmers that are identifying with regenerative agriculture or or looking at that as a part of their their farming goals or their their management goals for their farm, they're often the progressive no-tillers, the the no-tillers that have, have moved beyond managing for less soil disturbance and are, are managing for cover crops, they're managing for sure. diversity, and, and they're, they're using advanced management practices that um, bring further gains beyond um, no-till, which is incredibly valuable and, and an incredibly important practice to, to be adopted and certainly has been a challenge for organic farmers. You know, as, as more organic farmers have found success in reduced tillage and there's been more research from either land-grant universities or other agencies, um, we are seeing advances and, and farmers are seeing that there are ways to reduce soil disturbance or in certain phases of their crop rotation to eliminate soil disturbance that allow them to continue to to realize the gains they've made with their, their no-till practices and conventional and be able to move into the organic market and get that organic premium. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about the innovative no-tillers because these guys are always looking for something new to look at, and they don't—they do not have the attitude that won't work. They have the attitude, "I'll make it work." <laughs> Honestly, they're some of the most amazing people I've had the, the opportunity to work with, and I think they really welcome and embrace the challenge. Honestly, and they're right. looking at ways to to push forward beyond the incredible work that they've done integrating cover crops and diversity on their farms. And have seen, honestly, with the adoption of those practices, they've been able to lower their inputs to such an extent that organic doesn't seem to be an unachievable practice for their farms. They've already been able to, with the building of soil health and soil biology, been able to lower their their fertilizer inputs, been able to to lower their herbicide inputs. So they're they're very close to organic anyway and are are looking at just going that bit further to be able to get the organic premium on the market. I think something that's happened the last few years is they've seen the differences they can do in weed control. So they're seeding cover crops, they're rolling them down maybe without using any herbicides to kill it, and then they're planting green. Mm-hmm. So they're partially that way way ahead on moving to organic, aren't they? Exactly. And those are really a lot of the same principles we've used in developing our cover crop-based reduced tillage practices in organic. So that's where there seems to be a convergence of these intensive um, cover croppers that have adopted no-till that are, are really aligning with regenerative ag practices and 
uh, the, the work that has been done um, not only by, by researchers, but by farmers themselves looking at these reduced till practices and organic. So there, there is, is such great overlap and, and synergy between those groups that it's, it's been really heartening to see the advances that have been able to be made in the last five years. In large part, too, because of increasing technology and interest in equipment manufacturers, there are a lot more options now with management, you know, really pushing the envelope on what can be done. I'm hopeful that in the next five years, we'll continue to see even in more advances and being able to have a more successful, reliable, consistent management of these systems. I take it you got some research plots on no-till organic. What are you finding? We do. So a lot of our work has focused on the uh, cereal rye soybean system. So okay. that's, that's often the, the system that people first turn to. And really, as, as you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of parallels into how management of the rye soybean system is emerging in conventional systems with more and more farmers planting green and waiting longer to terminate the cereal rye, getting those weed management benefits as well as the, the biomass um, and, and the regrowth that, that helps improve uh, soil health, soil carbon, and, and soil biology. So in these systems, we are planting a cereal rye cover crop in the fall. Um, in these systems where we're using the cereal rye cover crop as our sole weed management tool, so no herbicides in the system, one of the critical aspects is to plant that cereal rye early in the fall. So when I'm talking early in Wisconsin, I'm, I'm talking typically by the middle part of September, no later than the end of September. Mm-hmm. Um, we plant at a heavy seeding rate um, at about three bushel an acre. We're continuing to refine that recommendation on a, a seed per acre basis, but I'm going to throw it out there as three bushel <laughs> an acre as a rough estimate for now. Well, it's um, pretty cheap. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, but it, there, you know, one of the things I've been finding is that there are certain varieties of cereal rye that tend to work better than others. That's another uh, aspect of the system that um, farmers should pay attention to. But the cereal rye, um, it will, it will germinate. It will start growing in the fall. It will um, maintain that beautiful green cover through the winter, protecting the soil. Um, helping foster soil microbial communities, starts to, to really take off and growth again in, in late April, early May. And even with that heavy seeding rate, we, we wait until the end of May to, to terminate that cover crop. So without any chemical inputs, it's, it's key to, to wait until that rye cover crop is, is flowering and then we can terminate it mechanically and have that be our, our, our sole tool for weed management during the soybean production phase. When would these soybeans have been planted? It's, so there's a few different options that, that we've researched and that farmers are implementing on their field. So um, the traditional way that this system has been implemented would be to plant the soybeans at the time of rye termination. And again, to okay. do this mechanically without herbicides, it's critical to do that at flowering, which typically occurs at the, the very, very late part of May into the first right. week of June. So we are talking about a later planting of soybeans. But again, as we talk about the convergence in these different systems, what farmers are starting to implement is to plant the soybeans green into the rye at just about the boot stage. So, you know, right around the middle part of May, um, they'll 
they'll plant the, the beans directly into that standing cereal rye and they'll let that standing cereal rye continue to, to grow as the soybeans germinate and emerge. And then they'll terminate mechanically over the emerged soybeans at about right. the V1 stage. Okay. Um, so that gives a, a bit of an advantage in terms of um, soybean planting date. So we're not pushing the planting ba- date back as far as we would waiting till anthesis. Um, and there's pluses and minuses to, to both management systems. And, and honestly, um, the best management is taking into account the conditions of a given year, um, looking at temperature and, and soil moisture to see um, what would be the best option for any given environment. The other aspect of organic no-till management of soybeans that tends to be more challenging for farmers is uh, the stage of rye where mechanical termination is most effective. And and that's at the stage of anthesis when the rye is flowering. So where it's tempting to get out in the field a bit earlier and push termination a bit earlier, um, if weather conditions are favorable, um, it, it really is essential for that rye to to terminate and remain down on the soil as a mulch to suppress weeds to wait till that rye is flowering. You can see the anthers coming off of the rye heads. You can run your hand across the rye heads and see the yellow pollen. Um, And you want to wait until the entire field is is at that stage of anthesis, actively um, shedding pollen um, before you mechanically terminate. If you go in too early, that rye is going to come back um, and and continue to grow, which not only competes with the soybeans, but potentially could uh, produce viable seed that could be a, a challenge to manage in subsequent years. So in Wisconsin, I mean, when you're talking about you want you want to seed this cereal rye by mid-September, it causes a problem for some growers who want to take corn for grain, but the but corn silage fields would fit into that very well. Yes, and then that that definitely is something that farmers must consider when implementing this system because it, it really is a system that all of the agronomic factors must be taken into account. So it it often does require a divergence from our typical corn bean rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as you mentioned, oftentimes you know, corn silage may be an option. Um, but if there's not a market for livestock feed or if there's not livestock on the farm um, itself, uh, that, that, that may not be a viable option. But right. there's, there's other rotations that farmers are having success with. I've seen farmers do rotation where they're planting rye after a cereal grain, so harvesting sure. oat or harvesting a winter wheat crop, and that opens up a window. You know, some are harvesting field peas. There is a market mm-hmm. for pea protein, for peas for the protein market, so that's another option. There could be a, a market or an opening after an alfalfa crop, and you may want to look at using that end credit from that alfalfa stand for corn, but um, potentially with uh, depending on what your your markets are and looking at the price of corn versus soybean, you, you may want to plant the, the rye cover crop after alfalfa. So 
you know, there are different options of potentially depending on where you are, if you plant a shorter season corn hybrid, that might open up a window, but it does take some, some advanced planning and thinking through what is your crop sequence and how am I going to get that rye planted in the appropriate window? Right. Let's back up a minute and you run us through the certification process because I'm not totally clear on it. I'm sure some of our listeners aren't either. Sure. So to become a certified organic farmer, there is an inspection and certification process that the the farmer must undergo. And and certainly the whole farm doesn't need to be certified um, all at once. So if if we had a 2,000-acre no-tiller, he could do 200 acres of organic, right? Definitely. Yeah, okay. it, there is, um, and the more and more farms are looking at the benefit of running parallel operations. And some of the, the benefit is to reduce risk. Some of the best farmers that I've had the opportunity to work with are running both conventional organic acres. And they're very strategic about what acres they operate under what management conditions. So certain mm-hmm. fields may be more prone to weed issues or they're harder to get in to cultivate because they they may not drain as well. There may be risk of contamination with adjacent fields. So there's a whole host of reasons why they, they may choose to manage certain fields, organic and conventional, but, but certainly there are strategies to do so and many farmers are taking advantage of that to diversify their operations, to diversify their markets and to spread out risk. Um, so to become certified organic, um, one must work with uh, a certifier. Um, the certifiers are third-party agencies in, in most cases that are accredited by the USDA. Um, there's certifiers that work in all 50 states to do certification of not only uh, grain, but also livestock and, and vegetable crops. Sure. Working with that certifier, you'll be able to learn what practices are allowable in organic. So it's not just the inputs one uses, the the fertilizers, the uh, insect or disease management tools, a seed, but there's also requirements with respect to crop rotation, soil stewardship, cleaning out equipment. So there's there's different aspects that farmers must must consider and adhere to when becoming certified. Um, it's a 36 month process uh, from the last prohibited input to the time mm-hmm. that that farm is eligible for certification. But depending on what crop is grown and and when those inputs are applied, um, honestly the the process may only take two production seasons. So it's important to work with, you know, whether it be um, a crop consultant or someone um, in extension or advisor um, or other trusted farmer mentors to look at what strategy might be best to set oneself up well for organic management while um, looking at the, the economics and the profitability of that time through transition. So I had you explain this because my next question is after this farmer has done these organic soybeans, what's likely to be his next crop? You answered some of it because there's lots of options, but uh... yeah, yeah, there's. I mean, oftentimes organic grain farmers that I work with, not only in Wisconsin but our adjacent states, Illinois, uh, Iowa, even into uh, Indiana and Nebraska, oftentimes. The foundational crops are, are corn, soybeans, and then a cereal grain. I saw something recently that there's been a tremendous 
market for imported organic soybeans for poultry feed. But there's been some problems with worldwide acceptance or distribution of that lately, so it's, I would think that soybean market's got big potential for us. There is. There is. Actually, the soybean market is um, holding steady. The prices have been holding steady. Some you know, recent market projections I've heard um, really show a, a lot of a promise with respect to demand of, of soybean within the, the next year or so. And there tends to be less soybean acres grown as compared to, to other organic crops. And, and one of the reasons why is because of challenges with respect to, to weed management in a typical cultivated organic system. So uh, certainly these organic no-till systems where we're using the cover crop to suppress weeds, to limit the nitrogen available to the weeds, and to also take advantage of the allelopathic properties of the cover crops to uh, prevent weed seeds from germinating and not only help us, again, achieve our soil health goals and reduce soil disturbance, but also um, are a, a really valuable tool in terms of weed management that will help us capture that organic soybean market and, and fill that domestic demand. You mentioned mechanical killing, terminating the cereal rye crop. What are you using? What different ideas you're testing? When we started this research over a decade ago, we were using the roller crimper that was designed by the Rodale Institute sure, of Pennsylvania. Right. So that was an implement that either could be mounted um, on the front or, or behind a tractor, depending on if it was a, a one or two pass operation with respect to termination and planting. Mm-hmm. Typically, uh, these were envisioned as a one-pass operation where soybeans were planted at the time of cereal rye termination. And essentially, it's a single cylinder with blades that are, are mounted on the cylinder in a chevron pattern to allow right. that implement to go over the field smoothly and, and get a, a uniform crimp of the rye stem. So in this system, it's, it's the roller crimper not only rolls the cover crop down, but also with these blades actually crimps. It doesn't cut, but it crimps or bends the stem, and that helps facilitate an effective termination. So that that was the implement that we had been been using for many, many years, very, very successfully. But like I mentioned, there's increasing options of of these sorts of tools on the market. I I think as um, different companies are are seeing the interest in not only in cover crops, but soil health and regenerative agriculture. So we've been uh, trialing several different types of roller crimpers to look at where they may be appropriate depending on different soil types or different soil conditions. So there are now roller crimpers that can be mounted on the planter that have different sharpness of the blades. And and farmers are are now having more and more options in terms of what works best for their systems, what works best for their existing equipment, and what might work best with their soil type. Yeah, we're even seeing people that are practically using lawnmowers for weed control in some of these. Farmers can get crazy and they'll try everything and make it work. They do. Are you cultivating these soybeans? So we we have not with uh, the practices that we're implementing, which mm-hmm. again the, the key components are 
planting the rye early and planting the cereal rye heavy enough in the fall, we have not had significant issues with breakthrough weeds to have to do cultivation. Uh, I I do know of circumstances where there are significant breakthrough weeds and and farmers have done high residue cultivation, which at least um, at minimum helps reduce the weed pressure between the rows. It doesn't help with in-row weeds, but, but certainly can help between the rows, helping with competition and and helping minimize contributions to the weed seed bank from that weed pressure in that given year. But honestly, our our weed management starts in the fall with uh, rye planting. And then um, after we plant the soybeans and terminate the rye, we don't go back into that field until we combine the beans in the fall. How are our yields on organic versus organic no-till versus regular no-till? You know, our, our organic yields have been very, very competitive what, with what our benchmark organic yields are in the region. So mm-hmm. you know, looking at our organic soybean yields in Arlington, Wisconsin, so the, the southern, south-central sure. part of Wisconsin, um, we're typically ranging between 40 and 50 bushels an acre and sometimes even edging up to 60 bushels an acre, 40 on the low end typically just around 50, which are excellent organic soybean yields. In the organic no-till systems, depending on the the year and the the conditions, um, yields will vary. Many years, the the yields are on par with our tilled or cultivated organic systems. So again, um, getting up towards 50 bushel an acre which at $18 a bushel organic soybeans, we can be quite profitable at at those yields. Um, But there are times where there's a bit of a a yield drag um, using the organic no-till systems. And then one of the um, focuses of our research has been to determine um, what is the cause of that yield drag and, and what practices we might implement to try to overcome that yield drag. So that doesn't occur every year, but it does. Um, there are years where we'll see a, a four to five bushel an acre yield drag on the organic no-till soybeans. In the conventional soybeans, I know that those yields can get up to 70 bushel an acre. Not positive what the county averages are in the area, but again, looking at benchmark organic soybean yield, they're quite competitive with the organic no-till system. Well, at $18 a bushel, I would be willing to take a few less bushels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I just saw a news release uh, recently from Penn State. They released some work and they they were they were doing the same thing and they had a little less profit because of lower average yields with no-till, but there were still good returns to that. Exactly. And with organic, you really have to look at managing the farm as a system. And there are trade-offs that oftentimes one will have to make uh, looking at overall um, trying to optimize profitability across the farm. And organic management with other row crops such as corn, one of the, the challenges, and this needs to be considered too during the transition, and what sort of equipment might be available on the farm, um, what are the, the labor resources is uh, there are peak times within the season that um, that there there can be a, a need to to cover um, a lot of acreage um, in terms of, of cultivation and depending on the season 
um, you know, when, when we have rains, um, the different uh, soil conditions in a given season, it can be quite challenging to do timely weed management in a way um, that doesn't compromise our overall yields on the farm. So having a certain amount of acres in organic no-till soybeans where, like I described, there's no need to go over those fields again once the soybeans are planted, looking at the overall labor management um, and successful weed management across the whole farm, it may be more beneficial to to take a, a few bushel and acre yield loss if a successful weed management is able to occur over all fields. We'll get back to Frank and Dr. Aaron Silva in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Aaron Silva, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Someone asked me recently, what was the biggest no-till field that I knew of? It's in northern Alberta near the town of Manning in the Peace River area, and the best way to get there is to fly into Alberta's Edmonton Airport, which is already way north, rent a car, and then make a six-hour, 400-mile drive to the Peace River. Ken Deshant is no-tilling up there, and he has a field that's about 8,000 acres, and a single equipment pass covers seven miles from one end to the other. Previously, the no-till field covered 5,000 acres, but he cleared some more land and an abandoned road boosted the acreage. Up there, he no-tills wheat, barley, and canola, and anhydrous ammonia is deep banded in the fall after harvest with an exactric system with single-disc deer and case IH openers mounted on a 60-foot wide toolbar and the farm stores enough fertilizer to deep band 14,000 acres over a 20-day period in late September and October. So that's the biggest no-till field I know of. If one of our listeners knows of a bigger one, I'd like to know. Thank you. Let's get back to the program now as Frank and Dr. Aaron Silva discuss herbicide drift concerns for organic fields that are adjacent to conventional fields. guy with 2,000 acres who's doing a couple hundred acres of organic no-till. He's got a field next to where he has his organic no-till and he's using herbicides. Does he mm. have to be concerned with drift onto the organic field? Sure, yeah. Now that drift is something that certainly needs to be considered, whether it's running a, a parallel operation under a single farm or whether it's looking at you know, overall distribution of fields and the management of neighbors. So within organic right. certification, there is a minimum buffer that needs to be implemented to, okay. to minimize the risk of drift. That certainly would need to be um, considered in terms of the placement of organic versus conventional, conventionally managed fields. What would be an idea of the size of that buffer or the width? 
Boy, that's a, <laughs> that really, that's one of, um, I, I, I know one of the frustrations that farmers have sometimes with the organic regulation is that there are some gray areas and uh-huh. buffer areas are one of the areas that, um, you know, what is the I- ideal buffer um, is a bit more gray depending on what is grown in, in different fields, um, you know, what is the, the risk in terms of field placement and prevailing winds. Or, um, so it's, it's hard to say what is the best, right. um, okay. what is the optimal distance, um, but it, it's something that, that needs to be thought out in terms of isolation of fields. You know, what is the risk not only of herbicide drift, but also pollen contamination? Because uh, one of the things that is considered with certification of organic product is that it's GMO-free. And if there is GMO pollen drift from an adjacent field, um, right. that can okay. cause uh, rejection of the organic product from a buyer. Certification rules, are they federal standards or state standards? They are federal standards. So in certain states, there are state certifiers, um, certifiers Mm -hmm. that are part of um, state departments of agriculture, but they are federal rules. Um, And globally, there are different organic standards. Um, There can be equivalencies between different standards, such as the Canadian standards and the um, European standards, where there are slight differences from the uh, U.S. standards, but they're similar enough, whereas they're then deemed equivalent, so they can be sold in the U.S. or, or that product can be sold in other countries with their own certification standards. Mm-hmm. But they are, they are federal standards that are housed under the, the USDA Ag Marketing Service. So you mentioned GMOs. So GMOs are not acceptable in organic? That's my dumb question of the day. (laughs) (laughs) No, the GMOs are prohibited in organic production systems. What's going to happen with, say, corn and soybean breeders get more into GMOs? Are they still going to support non-GMO lines? I guess they will because we've had more interest in non-GMOs the last couple of years, regardless of tillage systems. We have, and that's that's. I think that um, you know, as we've seen um, the the growth in these markets, I I would say that we've actually seen. Um, renewed interest um, from a large range of companies in not only breeding um, non-GMO varieties, but varieties specifically for organic production systems. Mm-hmm, so sure. it's, you know, consumer interest in the market continues to to grow. It is a space where uh, farmers can look at diversifying, diversifying crops and diversifying markets. And I, I think it's recognized that this market is not going away and it, it, it continues to be a, a, a growth area for our domestic agriculture. Let's say I come to you and I'm a 100% no-till corn and soybean grower and I got 2,000 acres and I want to get started with organic. What are you going to tell me to do? I would tell you to... <laughs> Be prepared to have to do some degree of, of soil disturbance. The last thing I want to do is to set up a farmer with unrealistic expectations. Sure. Um, and right now, whereas we have the organic no-till sweeping uh, system established in a way that it's reliable, it's low risk. I mean, it, it certainly can have its challenges still, but but overall, if the rye is planted at the right time, if it's planted at a heavy enough seeding rate, if if the soil fertility is good, and if it's terminated at the right time, that the system can be quite reliable um, and quite productive. 
but we're still working on um, developing these similar systems for organic corn. So I, I don't want farmers to come in with the expectation that they're going to be able to do the same sorts of practices and successfully achieve a organic no-till corn crop. Um, there's progress being made. I mean, there, there's farmers that are really pushing the envelope on this um, and seem to be doing it successfully, but uh, I, I don't think it's a practice that we, we can successfully adopt on every farm and every acre um, at this point. So I got this 2,000 acres. How many uh, acres should I try and get an organic right off the bat? Boy, that's a, that's a good <laughs> question. And again, I think that depends on uh, resources, potentially the land and, and the weed pressure, uh, what investment um, a farmer is, is willing to make in equipment. But I, I would suggest doing more of a tiered approach to transition versus trying to transition all acres at once um, right. to be able to have, get a, a better sense of um, the commitment that's required um, and what equipment may be needed to implement a successful organic operation, but also from an, an economic and, and financial perspective to, to really look at strategies to be able to finance through the, the transition so that right. there is not a insurmountable cost to putting acres into organic production. At our no-till conference in January in St. Louis, I talked to two cousins from Ohio who just scared me. They're running about 1,500 acres, and their goal was to immediately go as quickly as they could to 1,500 acres. I don't know whether – I I got kind of got the feeling they were going to go all in, but I, to be honest with you, I would hope they wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty ambitious to transition 1,500 acres all right, at, right. at once. right. I'm back to this 2,000-acre no-tiller. If I've got 80% of my ground just strictly no-till, I'm going to no-till those beans first week of May or so in Wisconsin. But with organic no-till, it's going to spread out my planting season because you're saying I shouldn't plant until May 15th or 20th and then leave it alone to June 1. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have plenty of time to get my regular no-till in the ground and going before I have to start any organic. Exactly. The organic management tends to occur after conventional management. So mm -hmm. I think that is a, a way to, to spread out equipment use and, and labor over the field. And also that difference in planting date helps with minimizing uh, pollen contamination as well from the conventional versus organic crop. If you had organic soybeans and you had beef cattle or Holstein calves that you wanted to graze, would they have to be organic to keep your certification? No, they don't. So that that certainly okay, is a, a great opportunity for organic farmers as well. And and one of the aspects of a rotation that make organic fertility and weed management more successful is to have the option of planting alfalfa or hay phase of the crop rotation. And, and also even with uh, looking at integrating more intensive cover crop practices to reduce weed pressure, the option of adding value by grazing those cover crops is an advantage as well. Mm -hmm. So one option for organic grain farmers is to potentially do custom grazing. And those 
those animals right. that come onto the farm, um, they do not have to be organic. So one could potentially look at the opportunity of working with a conventional neighbor to bring, whether it be beef or, or dairy heifers onto the farm, sure. um, you know, whether it's selling that, that hay or, or grazing, try to develop a relationship there to be able to more successfully integrate those um, you know, really valuable uh, alfalfa or hay phases. Um, obviously, there's challenges with fencing and, and water that need to be considered, but um, I, I do hear that there, there are those sorts of arrangements being made to, right. to uh, help add value to those phases of the organic crop rotation. Well, we got some no-tillers these days who are trying 60-inch corn rows, so there's a big mm-hmm. demand demand for grazing that grass in between those rows. Yeah, and that's uh, definitely, as I hear more about those systems, that seems to be one of the aspects that, that really help make those systems be, be profitable and, and gain all the potential value from having that biomass growing between the, the, the corn rows and make up for a potential reduction in yield by moving on to you know, 60 inch from, from 30 inch rows. So um, with all that sunlight that's been able to be captured between those rows by the growing cover crop, it really uh, sets, sets up the field for a, a good potential for grazing in the fall. 20 years ago or so at our no-till conference, we had a speaker from South Africa, and this was the first time I had heard of 60-inch rows, and I don't know whether he was serious or not, but he used to say they were in 60-inch rows, so when the elephants and rhinoceros went through there, they didn't knock the corn down. Oh, interesting. (laughs) If I raise these organic no-till soybeans, how do I market them? Who, Who do I market them to? There are increasingly more and more opportunities to bring uh, the the beans to market. It is a bit more of a challenge um, because it they are uh, a bit fewer and further between, so to speak, than marketing traditional beans. We do have resources on our O'Grain website to to help farmers um, identify potential uh, possibilities for for marketing the the soybeans, um, and there are also um, uh, different organizations like O-Farm um, that can assist with uh, looking at um, organic marketing of, of grain crops. So there are resources that are out there, but um, again, with, with much of organic, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer and, and varies depending on where the farm is located. You mentioned O-Grain. One of our editors, Julie Gerlach, went to your meeting last winter. Tell us a little about the meeting you have. Yeah, so um, O-Grain is the name of our organic extension program here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So O-Grain stands for the Organic Grain Resource and Information Network. Uh, So O-Grain arose out of the need um, as we we saw this um, lack of supply of of domestic grains, um, which includes corn and and soybeans and oats and, and other cereal grains as well that there were a lack of resources, a lack of easily accessible resources for growers that were either currently producing organically or um, interested in making that transition. So we developed O-Grain to not only be able to provide these resources to farmers from our roles as uh, extension specialists, but also to provide a way for farmers to be able to network with each other and network with others in the industry, including um, farm advisors and buyers 
um, so that these uh, resources that, again, can be a, a bit harder to find as compared to conventional resources were more readily accessible and farmers could be more successful in their production or, or in their transition. So we have a two-day winter conference, which hopefully happens this winter, um, fingers crossed, depending on how things proceed with, with opening up here at the university, uh, where we have speakers come in from not only uh, university research programs, but, but experienced farmers, um, new farmers that have more recently made the transition, or new organic farmers, um, I should say. A lot of the farmers are very experienced, but newer to organic. But we also have a very active listserv um, where farmers can ask a question and, and get uh, feedback or perspective from other organic farmers or other experts. Um, and in a website where we have a whole host of, of videos, um, archived presentations and, and other videos, as, as well as fact sheets so that farmers can find information um, with respect to successful organic grain production. Why don't you give us the website address? So if you're interested in finding and, and looking through these resources, you can visit our website at ograin.cals.wisc.edu. Okay. When you say CALS, it's C-A-L-S? Yep. Well, I'm really impressed with a suburban Milwaukee girl learning all this much <laughs> about agriculture. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a learning curve. Thankfully, right. I've had a lot of right. farmers that have been helpful and uh, definitely showing me the ropes. Well, appreciate okay, you doing okay. this. All right, take care <laughs> and thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Reader recently asked me what I thought would be the growth of no-till over maybe the next 10 years. And it goes back to when uh, we started No-Till Farmer in 1972. There were 3.2 million acres. And today, nobody really knows how many no-till acres there are, but I would assume it's in the 110 million acre category for 2020. My best crystal ball guess for 2030 is that no-till will be used on 145 million acres in the U.S. And I think the worldwide no-till acreage should reach 466 million acres in 2030, which would be an increase from 388 million worldwide no-till acres in 2013. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Dr. Aaron Silva for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Nuttall Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.